Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Before we begin, let me say a few words about our speaker. Mr. Valdez is indisputably the leading Chicano director and playwright, a man whose commitment to social justice and the human condition is evident in all that he has accomplished. He founded the Teatro Campesino in 1965, inspiring a national theater movement, a movement that continues to this day. His eclectic body of work includes plays, poems, books, essays, films, and videos. Valdez's work has inspired many articles, master's theses, dissertations, books, both in this country and abroad. Moving into the professional realm, Luis wrote and directed Zoot Suit in Los Angeles in 1978 and on to Broadway in 1979, the first for any Chicana or Chicano playwright or director. The play was subsequently adapted into a motion picture written and directed by Valdez and released in 1981. In Luis wrote and directed the hit film La Bamba. His stage play, Corridos, Tales of Passion and Revolution, was adapted for PBS and won the coveted George Peabody Award. Other major projects include I Don't Have to Show You No Stinking Badges, a wonderful comedy with a great title, and his adaptation of the medieval classic La Pastorella, A Shepherd's Tale, for PBS's great performances. Valdez's original play, Bandido, premiered at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles. Since the year 2000, Mr. Valdez has premiered four new works, The Mummified Deer, Mundo Mata, Earthquake Sun, and Corridos Remix. Mr. Valdez has received numerous awards, including a Presidential Medal of the Arts and the Mexican government's highest decoration, the Aguila Azteca, or Aztec Eagle. Dr. Valdez holds honorary Doctor of Arts degrees from several universities, including San Jose State University, the University of Santa Clara, Columbia College of Chicago, the University of Rhode Island, and the California Institute of the Arts. I could go on and on, but most importantly, we want to hear him speak. For these and many, many more reasons, it's an honor to welcome the man who has inspired so many of us, Mr. Luis Valdez. Thank you, Jorge, y feliz cumpleaños. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's wonderful to be here, to be back uh, on this campus, to share some thoughts and some ideas with you. The Power of Zero being the title of my speech tonight, but covering and encompassing many of the experiences that have led me to a life in the theater and in the arts and in film and television and so forth. The uh, relevant question, I think, and the operative question for the present, especially given our recent presidential elections, is to whom does the future belong? A quien le pertenece el futuro? And in that context, I would like to uh, address my theme of the power of zero, because it is most definitely a determinant in that future. In order to get there, though, I want to share a couple of things with you so that you know who I am, know me a little better. We all have uh, formative years. You should know that, uh, as children, you should know that I was born in 1940 in a farm labor camp in Delano, California. That's in the southern San Joaquin Valley. I was born into a family of migrant farm workers. The migrant camp is no longer there. It's now Highway 99. 
So I was literally born on the road, <laughs> and I'm still on the road. Uh, I was a migrant by birth. And so what's interesting is that in 1940, I was born in the month of June, and we were a migrant farm-working family and normally went out either north or south, south to the San Fernando Valley or, uh, or further points, or north up into uh, the Santa Clara Valley. That year, we didn't go anywhere because my mother had just given birth. And so we stayed put. The following year, interestingly enough, a family arrived uh, in Delano from Arizona, and uh, they came to rest right across the street from the labor camp where I was born uh, in a little couple of little cabins that one of my tias owned by that time. And the name of the surname of the family was Chavez. And there were two uh, teenagers, a younger one by the name of Richard and an older one by the name of Caesar. And so our paths crossed early on. I didn't know it at the time because that summer of 1941, I was already on the road, on the migrant path even before I could walk. And my family was up north. We were up in the Garden of Eden in a place called San Martin. This is between Gilroy and uh, San Jose or Morgan Hill. I don't know if you know that area. Uh, it's the garlic capital of the world, Gilroy. It's becoming the Walmart capital now of the world, you know, the way it's going. But in any case, uh, in those days, it was all farmland. And I'll never forget as a child coming around off Pacheco Pass and seeing Pass Soap Lake and seeing my first sight of the Santa Clara Valley. It was a veritable Garden of Eden. I mean, the cherry trees and the apricots and the prunes and the apples and the peaches. I had no idea I was an exploited farm worker. <laughs> you know, to me, it just looked like great fun. And we were going to La Costa, as we used to say, to the coast. And and it was a summer vacation, Pigate, you know. And so off we went. And uh, that year, there we were in San Martin. I was too old to know what the hell was happening, you know. We're all born somewhere, somewhere on this planet Earth, on this mud ball, you know. We raise our heads. We don't know who we are, what we're about, who, who's with us, except maybe Mama. That was about it. And that's all I knew. I knew my Mama. She was 20 years old. I was her third child. And she just lost... Uh, my brother before me, who died of a congenital stomach disease. But there we were on the migrant path, and we ended up in a farmer's barn. They moved the horses out, the animals out, moved the Mexicans in, you know. It's a fair exchange. Uh, and there were trees, and we were, you know, I was my cousins and aunts and, cousins and uh, uncles were there, and we were all living in this barn, sleeping on the hay. And uh, we used to cook on an improvised stove. It was a tin tub, una tina, you know, with a hole cut in the side. And uh, my aunt and my mother would, would put the... Would pieces in the side, and it was very, very functional. You know, it was very light. It could travel on top of the truck, and not a problem. One morning, everybody's hustling on ready to go to work, and, and in a moment of uh, disregard, uh, uh, they forgot the ch children. And, uh, and so what happened is that I used, was starting to walk, and I had a little aunt, a little cousin who was a bit older than me who could walk, and my aunt used to prepare her milk bottle uh, in a little tin of, uh, of water. You know, uh, I was breastfed, so, you know, my lunch was portable. But um, hers was in this bottle, and my aunt uh, was heating the water. And uh, again, it was a moment, not of carelessness. I think everybody was so busy getting ready to go to work when uh, I happened to crawl by the stove, and my cousin grabbed the handle of the pan, pulled on it, it tipped over, and fell on my back. I screamed and, and, and passed out. My dad came running, wrapped me up in a blanket, and they took me to the nearest hospital, a place called uh, Gilroy. And uh, Wheeler Hospital was the only hospital. It was a white hospital. This is 1941. And here's this family of migrant farm workers of Mexicans coming in, and really they didn't know what to do with me. They opened up the blanket, and all the skin on my back fell off, part of my face. I was 
skinned before I was one year old. And my mother was terrified she was going to lose another son. She used to tell me years afterward, Mijito, te estabas muriendo. My son, you were dying. This, this was her fear, her greatest fear. And, uh, but what happened then is 1941. Today, I guess I'd be in the ICU, maybe, the burn unit. But uh, in those days, 1941, we're Mexicans, no place for me to stay. So they gave me some kind of treatment, some kind of salve on my back, and released me into the care of my mother to go back to the horse barn. Now, regardless of what kind of infections might have been possible, it was a tremendous risky uh, beginning for me. Uh, I didn't, don't remember a thing. I don't remember the pain or anything, but it was certainly an inauspicious beginning. And the fact is that uh, my mother was deathly afraid she was going to lose another son. So what she did is that for the next six months, I slept on her stomach heart to heart. She was afraid to let me roll over. Now, out of this tremendous negative came a tremendous positive. One, my mother's love. Incredible. I had an extended six months of womb time. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, it, it was, a, a, as Jorge once said, a womb with a view. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it, 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 was, it was energizing to me. And then on the other half, the hot water that hit my spine. I didn't know it at the time, but I know that the spine is your central nervous system. And so what I think all of that did, I don't recommend it, don't go off and, you know, scald yourself, but what happened is that it got my pump going. Se me echó la pompandar, as they say in, in Spanish. And the fact is that, that I was set. I was on. I was turned on. And with my mother's love for the rest of her life, God bless her, uh, I was on my way. Now, six years later, we're still on the migrant path. We've done the Santa Clara Valley. We're coming into the San Joaquin Valley. We come to a place called Corcoran. And that's where there's a state prison now, a huge state prison. That's where Charlie Manson resides, you know, where Robert Downey Jr. got a vacation recently. And, and, and Juan Corona lives there. You know, there's a number of people. In those days, there was no prison. What they've done in the San Joaquin Valley is they've developed a cottage industry, perhaps all over the state of California, where there used to be rural areas, they've developed prisons, where they imprison Latino and African-American youth, and it's become a cottage industry. And it's damn hard, high time that they stopped it. You know what I'm saying? It, yes, absolutely. But in those days, in those days, there was no prison, just a big cotton camp. And I mean, everybody was out there. We had African-Americans from the South. We had Filipinos. We had Chinese, Japanese, all of the Asian groups. We had uh, white people, Okies and Arkies. You know, it was amazing. We had Mexicans. We had Puerto Ricans. I mean, everybody was out there. I thought that's the way the world was. I thought everybody was a cotton picker. <laughs> you know, I mean, everybody picks cotton. Look at everybody over here. They're all colors, you know. And we all lived in this big camp. It was amazing, you know, slightly segregated, kind of interesting. The Mexicans on one side, the blacks on the other side, the whites. It was, uh, but, you know, we shined it on. The fact is there were so many people out there because the depression never ended for farm workers. I know that for a fact. I lived the Great Depression into the 1950s. I began to wonder, what the hell's happening with my family? Why are we poor? You know, are we stupid or what? No, we're just in the Depression. I'll come back to that. But the thing is that... that it, it, then, then the cotton season ended within a month. It was gone, you know. And uh, we were time for us to leave. Everybody had to leave the, the, that ranch. We couldn't leave because uh, our, my dad's truck had broken down. It was up on blocks. He was trying to fix it. We couldn't even move on. So when the, one of the cabins emptied out, we moved into the cabin. It started to rain. We didn't have anything to eat. We were fishing in the river. We had beans and tortillas, a few papas, you know, a few potatoes, and the fish that we fished out of the San Joaquin River. That was it, you know. We were eating... A fish and taco, well, fish tacos before they were trendy, you know what I mean? <laughs> 
Well, one day I almost drowned in the Dam River. You know, I remember my dad shaved me, grabbed me by the hair and pulled me out. So my mom said, you guys better go to school, me and my brother. So we climbed the school bus one day and went to the nearby school at a place called Stratford. Not Stratford on Avon, Stratford on the San Joaquin. And there, you know, I knew I wasn't going to be there for very long. My prized possession was my little brown paper bag, you know, which I used to fold. Paper bags were at a premium in 1946. There were paper shortages. You know, those that lived through World War II may remember this. In any case, I used to take care of this little bag and fold it. Mama's tacos, you know, I would carry those. Never forget the warmth of those tacos on cold mornings. It was my mother's love, you know. And I used to take the, the bag and put it in the closet. And, uh, and come lunchtime, I mean, I would uh, take it out and go out to the yard. There was no cafeteria and we'd eat. And there I discovered something. I saw the other kids come out. Uh, they had lunch pails. <laughs> I'd never seen lunch pails, you know, metal things with Hopalong Cassidy on the side, Mickey Mouse, you know. And then they opened it up and then they pulled out this, these two pieces of white board, you know, wrapped in wax paper and no, white bread. It was white bread. And bologna and cheese and lettuce and tomato. I'd never seen this. What an extravaganza. Look at this thing, you know. And then on top of that, uh, to one side, they, they, they had cupcakes. Cupcakes. You know what I'm saying? And an apple. And then here's the kicker. They pulled out a thermos. And they opened the thermos and they pulled out, uh, they poured milk, you know, or even Coca-Cola. Ay, cabrón. You know what I'm saying? Hijo. And then I'd look at my little sack, and uh, the more I looked at it, the sadder it got, you know. And I was swept with a feeling of shame. You know, my mother's tacos became an object of shame, and I crumpled up inside, you know. And, and uh, you know, what well, tacos are nice and soft and warm and round, you know, in the morning. By noontime, they're cold and medios chateados, you know. They kind of look like this, you know. So how could I eat them in public? The only way that I could do it was the way a wino drinks his uh, bottle, one bite at a time, you know, I think. Slide it out, you know, bite. <laughs> Up to the side, you know. The kids over here would say, what are you eating? Oh, no, 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 no. And then I kept looking at their sandwiches. They kept looking at my tacos, you know, and I'm looking at their sandwiches. They're looking at my tacos. I'm looking at their sandwiches. They're looking at my tacos. And one day, the inevitable happened. We exchanged lunches. And the rest is Taco Bell history, you know. <laughs> And then so the end of that day, you know, I'm going to go to the college to look for my little bag to take it home so my mother can refill it. And it's gone. And I start to panic. I can't find it. The bus is leaving. Where's my brown bag? Where's my paper bag? The teacher saw me running around. She says, what are you looking for? And I told her, she says, oh, a little brown paper bag. I said, yeah. Well, I took it. I said, well, give it back. And she says, I can't. And she took me into her back room, and there was my bag all ripped up, floating in a basin of water. I thought she'd gone crazy, berserk. I said, well, you're loca, la maestra. You know what I'm saying? And she says, no, look at this. And she reached in, grabbed a piece of my brown paper bag, dipped it into some white paste, and put it on a face. It was an animal. It was a monkey made out of clay. It was a, it was a mold. And then she took another one, smoothed it out, another one, smoothed it out. Want to try it? You know? And at that moment, I discovered one of the secrets of the universe. It's called paper mache. Now, by that time, it's November. And I said, uh, I knew it wasn't Halloween, so what's, what's this for? It's a mask. She said, it's for a play. Next week, we're going to have auditions for our Christmas play. Everybody's involved, the whole school, the school band. We need two first graders to play monkeys. We're going to have auditions. Will you want to try it? Oh, 
Sí, como no. I forgave her about the bag. The next week I tried out, and you know what? I got my first role in the theater. Man, I monkeyed my ass off. You know what I mean? I, 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 I got that role. That role was mine, man. With Mama's taco bag mask on my face, I got a, I got a costume that was better than my own clothes. I had a, you know, a, a red vest, you know, and a little green pants. You know, I had little red curly-toed shoes. I had a little red cap. I had a tail, you know. It was amazing. I mean, I was in heaven, you know. And then I saw the old battered school auditorium being transformed. You know, they brought the fake trees in. And, and then the school band starts to play. And I, I was in heaven. I mean, I was at the peak of my life. Six years old. Here, I'm going to be on Broadway. You know what I mean? My whole family, my cousins are going to see me star in this as a monkey, you know, in this Christmas play. Okay. The week before we actually did it, that week, we were evicted from the labor camp. I went to my mom and I said, Mom, the play, I'm going to be in the play. And she said, Mijito, we can't stay. We have no place to stay. But the play, she says, we have no place to stay. And so I cried, and she cried with me, and I'll never forget seeing Stratford recede into the fog the morning that we left. And I felt a hole in my soul, an emptiness. I could have been destroyed. But do you know something? That for the last 62 years, I have been pouring stories and plays and scripts right into that hole. That hole became the hungry mouth of my creativity. And you know something? It's still there. And I still feed it. I have to. It's part of my being. You see, that emptiness, that wholeness, was my first real understanding of the power of zero. It was a hollow that I had to fill. It was a full emptiness and an empty fullness. Moving right along, 1948, I'm eight years old, third grade, early March, California. I'm in the third grade. Miss teacher is Miss Newfield, fresh out of school, fresh out of college, uh, blonde and pretty. She was sweet on the sixth grade teacher who used to teach shop to the sixth grade boys. So one day she walks in there with a truck that the sixth graders had made, and she puts it on her desk. It's a wooden, bright yellow wooden truck, steak truck, the kind of truck I used to take to go to the fields. <laughs> I remember riding in those trucks in the back, and I looked at that truck, and somehow I felt this will give me power. This is a totemic object that I can use to take power over my life as a migrant farm worker. So I wanted that truck. I really wanted that truck. Because she said that at the end of the month, we're going to award this truck to the best behaved boy in class. I thought to myself, well, that's me. <laughs> you know, I love school. And so I'm always a good student. So I figured, yeah, I got a chance. I got a chance. But like everybody else in the class, I knew she had a favorite. I forget his name, you know, bless him anyway. But his name was Jimmy, I guess. We'll call him Jimmy for the sake of, uh, of the story. And so uh, one day I see Jimmy handing out papers, you know, in class. And I got an idea. So at the end of the school day, I went to the teacher. I said, teacher, Miss Newfield, do you think that tomorrow I can be class monitor? And she got really serious, and she said, well, sit down, Louis. Well, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy's the son of a grower. And I said, yeah? Well, when he grows up, he's going to inherit his daddy's uh, farm. He's going to have a lot of people working for him. And, and, and I said, uh, he's got to learn how to give orders. And I said, yeah? And but you, well, you, you're the son of a farm worker. And when you grow up, you're probably going to end up working for Jimmy. So he has to learn how to give orders, and you have to learn to take them. Or something to that effect, you know? Well, I thought to myself, I was eight years old, that's bullshit, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I didn't say anything. I didn't want to jinx my chances, so I didn't say anything. I shined it on, you know, and I, I just kept on doing my work. The next day, I see Jimmy on top of his desk. She sees him. She walks in. Jimmy, get down. And I thought to myself, ya chingue, I'm in. You know what I'm saying? And uh, so the big announcement came at the end of the month. And she says, and the yellow truck goes to... 
Jimmy. Oh, man. I was mad. I felt cheated. I said, eat, eat, that truck, what? Jimmy, Jimmy. I was so, I was in a rage, eight years old, rage. What did I do? I ran. I ran out of that schoolyard. And as I was running, I said, I'm going to do something about this. So I went over to my grandfather's house. He had a little shop, a wood shop in the back. And I went in there and I said, Abuelito, can I borrow your tools? And he says, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to make a truck. <laughs> and he smiled and says, okay, mijo, but just clean up after yourself. So I went to work, man. Eight years old of rage. you know. And you, when you're eight years old, you can't wait. So right there, that afternoon, that night, I had to have it. So I got myself a piece of a two by four. I started to saw. I got little pieces of wood. I got the tops of mayonnaise jars, you know, with a nail. Con un clavo, you know, put it on both sides, you know. I made a little cab. I got the tops of, of Coca-Cola bottles, but made the headlights, you know. I began to, to, to move it out and nail it in. My grandpa had all kinds of nails, little nails. I used the little nails and I made the stakes and I began to look at it and the thing was a little wobbly but you know I, I pressed it down yeah that's not, hey it's moved down it's, what do you know it's beginning to look like a truck and I, I began and I paint I got to find some paint so I went to my grandfather's stash no yellow paint pink ni madre vamonos okay so and I, I painted it pink with black highlights and some white you know and then I began I, I began to look at this thing and it, it began to take shape and I'm standing there looking at it and my grandfather walks in he says ah hijo he said that's a truck and I said you notice, yeah, mira, and, and and I mean, I had a truck, and so I was so proud. I carried it home, and I showed my mom, and she was amazed. My dad saw it. Miko, you did this all by myself, you know. And so after that, I made airplanes. You know, I make them out of anything. I'd find bamboo. I'd find pieces of wood. I'd look for strange-looking pieces of wood. I'd, I'd find out those parts of palm trees. You know, that the bottom, the the, the bottom of the palm tree it looks like balsa wood. I began to use that. What happens, you see, is that you can begin to use anything. And I discovered from that truck a very important life lesson. It became one of the guiding principles of my life. When in doubt, build your own damn truck. <laughs> and this is what happened to me then, is that I wanted to become a playwright. I began to, and I began to sense along the way, this is how I became a playwright, is that when I began to play with my cousins, after I lost the, the, the chance to be in the play, and I, uh, I'd play it playing. I'd play at putting on plays, any backyard, any barn, any grove of trees, all of that would become my stage. And so I'd stage stuff, you know, and my cousins would get tired and bored. No, I don't get animals. Come on, man. We don't know what to say. Okay, come on. Say this. And without knowing it, slowly I became a playwright. So that there I was doing the stuff at eight and nine years old. I knew it was child's play. But at the same time, underneath it all was some residual anger. The six-year-old anger having been evicted from a labor camp. And I knew that someday I had to come back and settle that score. That I needed some social justice. And that I was going to combine those two things. The theater and social activism in order to deal with it. It took me a while. I went to, uh, I went to high school. I went to college. I became a ventriloquist along the way. Eventually, you know, I decided that maybe I can do something as a playwright. And I began to study American theater history, and I discovered the current of history. I discovered that there's a strong current that starts all the way at the beginning of the 20th century that I identified with, workers' theater. Theaters that were formed of workers way back 
in the North, industrial northeast, the Wobblies, John Reed, organizing workers at the textile worker, workers' strike in 1912, the, the year that my dad was born, uh, in Trenton, New Jersey. I began to study the evolution of theater in Mexico during the Mexican Revolution, Teatro de Pache in the 1920s, the German theater of the 1920s with Bertolt Brecht uh, and Edwin Piscator, you know, the, the evolution of a revolutionary politically oriented theater, and into the 30s discovered that during the Depression, the Depression, the last Depression, <laughs> there was... Uh, there was an active political theater in America with active political playwrights. Uh, people like Clifford Odets, who did Waiting for Lefty, and John Howard Lawson, who did Processional, and John Howard Lawson, who came to Hollywood and became one of the founders of the Writers Guild of America, and also one of the Hollywood Ten, who was blackballed. And then Ed, uh, William Soroyan, all of whom produced their plays with the group theater, group and ensemble of political actors working together in New York and even taking their plays to Broadway. I realized that the theater history that is taught in schools tends to ignore the theater activity that has been allied to the labor movement all through the 20th century. And I began to realize that just like farm workers were dropped out of coverage with the National Labor Relations Act of the 1930s, so too was theater sort of forgotten. So when I came along in 1965, by 1965, I was out of college, I'd produced the Shankahera Pancho Villa in college, and had made my way to San Francisco. I was working with the San Francisco Mime Troupe, and this is at the cusp, the beginning of the 1960s. Uh, Bill Graham, you know, the great rock impresario, was our business manager, and we were performing in the parks, and I figured that this was the kind of theater I wanted to do, a theater that was physicalized and moving, and then my chance came when my grandmother sent us a copy of El Malcriado from the San Joaquin Valley, and we learned about the United Farm Workers, and then the strike broke out, and I had had no choice but to go to Caesar. I went to Caesar, you know. And, and, and so when I was going, I was reminded of a story. Again, when I was eight years old, there was a, a teenager that I met, a teenager that I met who was a running partner uh, with my cousin Billy, and they were both pachucos in Delano, California. They were zoot shooters. And my cousin Billy had a running partner by the name of Cece. And they were, I, I was six years old, eight, seven years old, and they used to come visit in the house. And they both wore pachucos. They wore the zoot suit. They looked like giants to me. They were short Chicanos, actually. But to me, I was even shorter, so they looked like giants. In any case, I remember they're, they're coming into the house, and, and, and I was very impressed with them. Well, my cousin Billy, unfortunately, tragically died of pachuco's death in 1955, a violent one, 17 knife wounds to the chest. His friend Cece joined the Navy. Cece went off to join the Navy, and when he got back on leave one day, he went to the Delano Theater, which was segregated. In those days, only the white people sat in the middle section. The blacks, the Mexicans, the Filipinos, everybody else to the sides. No one questioned it. It was just the way it was. We, we, I went to the movies in segregated movie houses in California. Well, Cece, coming back from the Navy, he was still in the service, but in his civvies, decided to go to the movies, and he decided, because he was serving his country, to sit in the middle uh, section. And so he sat there, and everybody was shocked. The manager came running, and eventually he said, what are you doing here? He didn't want to leave, so they called the police. And they took him down to the local station, and they grilled him for two or three hours, but they couldn't figure out what to charge him with. There was no law against sitting in the middle section of, of the movie theater. So they released him, and everybody knew that. CC got off free. He sat in the middle of the movie theater, and nothing happened to him. So the next weekend, everybody sat in the middle section. <laughs> And Delano was desegregated, and little by little, all those movie theaters in California were desegregated. So when I told my mother I was going back to Delano, uh, she knew what I was talking about. So she says, oh, you're going to go work with Cece? And I said, Cece? Is he still around? She said, mijo, don't you know who Cece is? I said, no. Cece is Cesar Chavez. 
you get it? <laughs> it was a pachuco. Now, the thing about Cesar, which is amazing to me, and I'm talking now about the power of zero, is that I learned from him how to make something out of nothing. My form of theater had to come out of nothing. When I went to him, I caught up with him in Oakland, second week into the strike in the basement of a Catholic church, St. Elizabeth's Church in the Fruitvale District in Oakland, if you know the place, the immigrant community. And I went there and I pitched him this idea of a theater up by and for farm workers. And he looked at me and he says, well, you know, that's very, that's great, it's good ideas. He says, but you know, there's no money to do theater in Delano. There are no actors in Delano. There's no theater in Delano. As a matter of fact, there isn't even any time to rehearse in Delano. We're on strike night and day. Do you still want to do it? I said, absolutely, Caesar. What an opportunity. <laughs> the fact is that there was something. Out of that nothing that was in Delano was a spirit. And again, I have since recognized it as the Mayan truth, that there is no such thing as nothing. See, the Mayans, and I want to I make this a real sort of direct connection with the Mayans. I'm not suddenly going to start talking about the Mayans. Let me just say this much, is that the farm workers that you see laboring as beasts of burden in the fields to this very day are the descendants of ancient America. These are the descendants of creators of 400 cities of stone that were lined up according to the constellation of the stars. These are the descendants of people that did brain surgery 2,000 years ago. I know that there's an 800-pound eight gorilla anytime you discuss the Aztecs, you know, and Mel Gibson notwithstanding, you know. There's a lot about the Mayans, everything about the Mayans that we know nothing. We know nothing about the Mayans, you know. People ask me, what did you think of Apocalypto? And I said, compared to what? Against nothing? It's great, you know what I mean? Because there's never been anything about the Maya. Nothing about the Maya. Nothing about the Aztecs that is worth a damn, because what happens, what you hear about is the conquest of Mexico, because conquest fiction is something that you hear again and again with respect to the, the minorities of the world. People love to tell the story of how these people were conquered, but never how they survived conquered. How, never how they survived. Never how they created civilizational bases of their own. I'm not putting down the civilizations of the world, you understand. I'm European. I've had a, a Western education. I'm European. I love Europe. I go there all the time, you know? I love the cheese and the cigars and the wine. I can, I can rock out, you know, with the Europeans as much as anybody. I love Asia. Asia, beautiful. And Africa, which I have yet to really know, but there's a continent there. Again, <laughs> Sarah Palin notwithstanding, right? Sarah was a Palin in the neck, I'm going to tell you, you know. But, but the fact is, you know, that people are just as ignorant about Native America. And they look at the Latino coming to, they call us Latinos. Latinos? Latinos? Wait a minute. I took four years of Latin, okay? I know what Latino is. Those are the people out of Italy, right? Those are the people out of the Roman Empire. You know, those are the people that conquered half the known world before the time of Christ. You know? And they were great lovers <laughs> on top of that, you know? Those cabrones, they knew their way around the world, you know? But the thing is, the thing is that there are Latinos and spread out all over Europe, all the way to the British Isles. There's Latino blood all the way, and Latino culture, and Latino words, and Latino influences. But you would never hear anybody from Britain called a Latino. But suddenly, here we are, the descendants of Native America, the descendants of the pre-Columbian cultures, and we are the Latinos? We are the only Latinos. You know, I like, you know, I like Chianti. <laughs> I like pasta. 
I'll share that with the world, you know. But the fact is that there's more than meets the eye about pre-Columbian America than beans and tortillas, you know. And there's more than just beasts of burden, Latinos that come and pick our, our fruit and, and work in our kitchens. There's a culture here. There's a culture here that's been forgotten. Cesar Chavez himself is an example, a living example of the power of zero. He was able to take, when he couldn't even eat because he couldn't afford to eat as a union organizer, he developed the power to fast. He took Delano, California, where I was born and from which I ran away with my family when I was a kid, which was a sump hole of the universe. I didn't want to be in Delano anymore. He turned that into a Mecca. He turned that into New York City. He turned that into Washington. He turned that into a power spot. And I couldn't believe it when I went back to Delano. I couldn't believe who was coursing through that town. Everybody was there. The rich, the famous, the powerful, the, the writers. You know, I mean, it's, it was incredible what was happening in Delano. I couldn't, I couldn't kind of put it together. So how did this happen? It happened out of these individuals. It happened out of Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, who did it out of the power of their belief. They turned nothing into something because nothing is not nothing. Nothing. Nothing is something. And that's where the Mayan concept comes in. Cesar, in the final analysis, after centuries, is one of the leaders that evokes the ancient leadership of the Americas. The power of nonviolence, which can be attributed to Gandhi, without question, that can be attributed to Martin Luther King, without question, was also the power of Quetzalcoatl or Kukulkan, the feathered serpent in the Americas. Cesar never claimed to do that. He was a simple farm worker. But the fact is that me as a Chicano looking at him and trying to understand who is this guy. Damn, he's the reincarnation of the ancient power, the solar lords of the Americas. And he doesn't need a big retinue. He's doing it through his simple sacrifice. Because the real name of the Mexicans once upon a time was Masewales, los merecidos por la penitencia, those who earn their merit through their penance. That's how Mexicans were once described. And Cesar, like an ancient Mayan king, did penance for everybody else. That ritual of fasting for 36 days in 1989, that ritual of fasting, you know, was actually what eventually did him in. But uh, he, people don't like to admit that, but he drowned, you know. He'd been fasting for two weeks when he was fighting his last fight in Arizona against Bruce Church. And he took a bowl of soup that night, and that was how he broke his fast. And that soup went from his stomach up into his lungs, and he slowly drowned. And we lost Cesar because he sacrificed himself like an ancient king. And I saw that, and I said, that's who he is. I don't want to make it any more than that. But that's the resonance of the centuries playing back to us. And, you know, we don't know the Mayas because we don't know the culture. We don't know what America is. We've been told, all of us wrote memory in school, America came from Amerigo Vespucci. Okay? Named after the first name of somebody? Why not the last name? Why are we the United States of Vespuccia? You know what I'm saying? Why are we all Vespuccians? But America, because some printer up in Heidelberg, Germany, 1585, printed a map and it said America. And yet there's this tale from Peru where there, there was a king, a god king, both mythical god and also an actual living king, whose name was Tupac Amaru. Tupac Amaru Shakur, the rock, uh, the, the, the rapper, was named by his mother. Tupac Amaru 
is an Incan name that refers to a god, and his name means feathered serpent, just like Quetzalcoatl, just like Tezcatlipoca, just like Kukulkan. Tupac Amaru lived in a land of his own. You know what that land was? Amaruca. The land of Amaruca. Ladies and gentlemen, we live in the continent of America. And it is obscene for the United States of America to reserve that name only for itself. I am an American. I am an American with roots that go back 10,000 years. I don't deny anybody their Americanness. I think we have that in common. And, and, and let's just rejoice in the fact that there's a common term that we can use to describe all of the races of the world. But America was not meant to be a description of any single race or any single skin color. America was supposed to be an all-embracing term. And the power of zero is like that, because we're talking about America. And what resides in America is the power of zero. Okay, so what is zero? Zero is the Mayan concept that has to do with a number of different layers. You know, the, the Maya discovered zero a thousand years before the, before the Hindu, a thousand years before anybody else. On the basis of that, they were able to calculate to infinity. They were able to calculate 360,000 years into the future. We are now living through the Mayan calendar, a calendar more exact than our own. The 5,125-year round is going to come to an end in four years, 2012. Some people are saying it's the end of the world. Some people are saying it's the beginning of a new world. We don't have to wait until then. And don't expect that night will go into day or day will go into night. That's not the way that it works. We are already living to tremendous changes. I think the election of Barack Obama, Obama represents the beginning of a whole new era for America. So it doesn't have to be exactly 2012. You understand? There's a new promise here. But what makes it happen is that we're all living within zero. Our whole planet is a zero. Okay? Our whole planet is a globe. And you know what's happening is that the Maya, when people set out their astronomical charts long ago, the northern peoples were up here close to the North Star, so they could look at the North Star and see it up in the zenith. And so it looked to them that the sky was static. It seemed that the stars never moved. But if you came down toward the equator to where the Egyptians were and where the Maya were, what they saw the stars doing and the North Star is doing this. And so thousands of years ago, they said, there's something going on here. And so what they figured out was precession. What they figured out is that the summer solstice and the winter solstice, the autumnal equinox and the vernal equinox are the four marks on the horizon where the sun moves and rises across the year because the earth wobbles on its axis. So consequently, the earth is spinning around the sun, and the sun and the whole solar system is pinning around the center of the galaxy. So in four years, our whole solar system is going to be almost at the exact center of our galaxy, at the black hole that the Maya called Shivalba. Now, these are knowledge, this is knowledge that already existed, you understand, that was there. They had knowledge of astronomy. Now, all these poor farm workers don't know anything about this. They've never been told. That was lost. Do you know why it was lost? Not because the Spanish conquered them, but because smallpox came into being. And what was lost were the priests, what was lost were the teachers and the mothers and the, and the, the children and the doctors and the, the surgeons and the artists and the poets and the artisans and the architects. All of that was lost within the space of a lifetime. And it has taken the indigenous peoples 500 years to get back in their feet. And those of us that immigrated north, 
that came into the United States are part of the few that were able to get enough education to be able to express ourselves. And if they were the children of farm workers like me, dirt poor farm workers who were forced to live in harsh horse barns by virtue of our education, we were able to go back into the past and understand what it is that our ancestors really were about. And as a man of the theater, I've discovered that the power of zero is something that is implicit in our bodies. Just like Leonardo da Vinci's Man on the Wheel, okay, as an actor, I have discovered that we carry the power of zero in our bodies. I'll have to illustrate physically. Here it goes. Okay, the four points, all right. I live within a sphere. I am within a sphere. Now, certain cultures know that. If you, t- if you know Tai Chi, if you know Tai Chi, there's an Asian culture that says, yeah, we know that, that you are in the sphere. This is the power of zero that you're executing. If you dance, you know that. You know that power. You know that power. If you play baseball, you know the power of zero. You know why? Here's the pitch. The wind-up, and wow, the pitch, right? You're executing the power of zero. It's the power of the spiral. Because zero was represented by a a seashell among the Mayas. Because they believed in that spiral. And here's something. We all live within the spiral of our lives. Do you know that every nine years you are renewed? That you are going through the spiral of your life? In my life, I was skinned. I was literally skinned at the age of one. But I would have been skinned anyway at the age of nine. Because by the time, from the time that you're born until you're nine years old, your body has completely replaced itself with every cell in your body. And you begin to feel the peeling from about the year seven, when you're seven years old, to year, to the year nine. These are the stories I was telling you. This is the time of transition. You're, you're peeling like a snake. Because even though we are like wise monkeys, homo sapiens, we're also like wise serpents. Those Spanish priests that saw serpents on the temple walls thought they were seeing worshiping of the devil. But no, there were actually abstract symbols of the wave principle. Either the light wave, the microwave, the radio wave. You understand? This was the wave. And the wave is nothing more than the spiral laid on its side and smoothed out. The Mayas, because they were mathematicians, because they were scientists, understood the workings of the wave. They had hydraulics. They knew how to control water like the Romans. So they had underwater, they had underwater channels. Look at Teotihuacan. You see it there. Look at Montalvan. You see it there. They had underwater channels. They had flush toilets, just like the Romans. So you're talking about a culture that understood the natural world that it was living in. And you know something else? They understood drama. That's why they built 400 cities of stone. There were ceremonial centers. They didn't put theater in a box. They put theater up on pyramids. And it was a life and death affair. Why do I like political theater? I like political theater because I like a theater that means something. I like a political theater that gives you something and that risks something. A dangerous theater. Because life is that way. Because it has to be a life and death issue. And so as a Chicano, I have tapped into my Mayan roots and have developed a theater that is political. But that politics is really part of much larger throw. And so as we go, we begin to see then some of the manifestations of this culture in Chicano culture. I no longer limit myself just to one definition of what Chicano means. To me, it means continental American. And then to trace it to its origins, I need to understand how 
We have never lost Asia. You know, and let's be thankful for that because we all are part Asian already, certainly in California, and we should be thankful for the Asian culture, what that has taught us. And we're all European by virtue of what Europe has given us, treasures, innumerable treasures, literature and science from both places. Africa, what Africa has given us is its soul. And we've got, we've got I don't mean just soul, brothers, I mean its soul. I mean Africa has given us a sense of rhythm. Uh, and, and again, that's a cliche, but I mean that almost literally. I'll tell you what African and Hawaiian culture do. They activate the, the, the spiral in our bodies. Okay. That's dirty, huh? That's dirty pool. <laughs> Certain cultures, you know, our Calvinist ancestors, you know, our Puritan ancestors would say, stop that, stop that, cut that stuff out, you know? But in fact, without that, without the universal joint, none of us would be here, you know? I mean, it, it's, uh, that, that is the very stuff of life and death. And, and the thing is that the Mayans knew that the, that, that, the, that the zero was a spiral. And I'll illustrate it for you one other way. You take a one, take a one, put a zero in front of it. The one has suddenly graduated to 10. Put another zero, it has graduated to 100. Put another zero, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, 1 million. Go the other way. 1 one hundredths, 1 one thousandths, and so forth. All the way to the infinitesimal. We live in a culture now that is ones and zeros, ones and zeros. It is getting very, very Mayan. You understand, it's the computer age, but it's Mayan. Because the Mayans understood that with zero, you graduate to the next level. You are not only born at zero. Here's the mother's egg. Here's the father's sperm. And what does the sperm does? It spirals into the egg. And you've got a zygote. You've got a living, breathing creature that's going to begin to divide and become a human being. Okay? And the other, so at birth... We spiral out of our mothers. We come out like babies, just slithering forth. We spiral. So does it not make sense to you that when you die, you spiral to the next level? The Mayas believed that nothing is ever lost, that you spiral to the next level. Cesar is still with us. He has spiraled to the next level. And your most dearly beloved are not gone. They have spiraled to the next level. And you too will spiral to the next level. Because we are all born as part of a continuum. The wave of history. The rise and fall of human incident, creation, destruction, birth, and rebirth. That's who we are. And as a Chicano, as a playwright, I claim that continuum for myself. It is the continuum of the wave. It is the continuum of the cosmic serpent that is the Milky Way galaxy. It is the continuum of our lives and our history. Really, there's an ancient myth, an Iron Mayan myth, that speaks to the issue of cultural, political uh, transcendence, clashes as well as transcendence. And it's the question of the four roads. Four roads exist in the world. There's a red road and a black road, a white road and a yellow road. You can interpret these in any way you want. But they meet at the navel of the universe where heaven meets earth. The top and the bottom meet. 
In order to become fully human, you have to travel all the roads. What stands before us is the possibility of traveling the four roads in California today and in the world at large. But we must acknowledge the value of the people around us, that we enrich each other. The Mayas had a concept for work. It was called menya. To be, that's their word. Men as in mind. Men as in mental. Many Mayan words translate into English, into Latin, into Greek in a strange way. Men means to believe, to create, to do. If you can believe something, if you, then you can create something. If you can do something, it's because you believe something. Your actions speak louder than your words. To believe, to create, to do, that's men, that's mind. Ya is love and pain. If you feel love, you're going to feel pain. If you feel pain, it's because you feel love. To believe, to create, to do with love and pain, that's the Mayan menya. That's to believe and to do and to create. And so we're all workers in that sense. It means work. And so I believe those are the only workers that really matter. We're all workers, not beasts of burden, not wage slaves, but creative workers in the world in the Mayan sense. And that power resides, the power of zero, the power to change the world, resides in our ability to be able to believe. Not do you believe, but believe. This is why I went into political theater. This is why I had to go back to Delano to transform that place for me from a place of slavery to a place of liberation, thanks to Cesar and thanks to Dolores. And the thing is that there is an ancient poem that I will quote and I'll leave you with, and it is from the ancient poet, Prince of Texcoco, Nezahualcoyot, which he wrote back in the, eight, the 1470s, way before the coming of Columbus. And it goes like this in three languages. Tlein mashti kilnamikiakan machinemian moyolo iktimuyol sesenmana awikpatikwika timuyol popoloa intlaltikpakan machitlaltiu. In Spanish, ¿qué era lo que acaso tu mente hallaba? ¿Dónde andaba tu corazón? ¿Por esto das tu corazón a cada cosa? Sin rumbo lo llevas. Vas destrozando tu corazón. Sobre la tierra, ¿acaso puedes ir en pos de algo? And in English, what is it that your mind was looking for? Where is your heart? For this you give your heart to everything? You are destroying your heart. On this earth, you suppose you can ever go in search of anything and find it. So America, find your heart. America, find your heart and liberate yourself. America, find your heart and transcend those problems that would sink you to the depths. America, find your heart and know your universal humanity in every single human earth, regardless of point of origin. It is all one globe, and we all live on a single universal zero, a full emptiness and an empty fullness that holds us all together. So the question is, to whom does the future belong? A quien le pertenece el futuro? The future belongs to those that can imagine it. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Valdez, for that inspirational and profound address. 
Um, when you spoke about the power of zero weeks before coming here, I thought of the unseen digit, the unseen citizen, the invisibility of citizenship, and I had no idea that you would bring us to the profound philosoph- philosophical proposition of something much more um, intangible. May I please introduce the panel for tonight? Um, uh, that's Dr. Christine Gunerfeld, Dr. Dennis Childs, Professor Garcia, um, and uh, Jesus Perez Varela. Would you please come up to the podium? And would you also, Mr. Valdez, uh, join us? Let me give you a brief introduction, although you have this in your program. The moderator for tonight, and this will be a 45-minute panel discussion with uh, audience participation, where we'll ask you to ask questions uh, at the second half of the panel. Dr. Christine Hunefeld has been teaching for the History Department at UCSD since 1990. She received her PhD in Ethnology, Americanistics, uh, and History from the University of Bonn, Germany in 1982. Her research focuses on Latin American history with an emphasis on Andean history, life of women, and indigenous populations and slaves. Uh, Brief History of Peru is her recent book from Chekmak Books, and she's also the director of CELAS, the Center for Iberian and Latin American Studies. Uh, Joining us on the panel is Dr. Dennis Childs of UCSD Department of Literature. He is the recipient of of a Ford Foundation Dissertation Fellowship in 2004-2005. Dr. Childs has written about Toni Morrison and other African-American authors on the blues and folk folk musician Leadbelly on canonical narratives by former slaves such as Frederick Douglass and on prison narratives by Malcolm X. He has published an article, Angola, Convict Leasing and the Annulment of Freedom, published by Indiana University Press. Joining us also on the panel from California Western Law School is Professor Ruben Garcia, who, after teaching at the University of California at Davis School of Law and the University of Wisconsin Law School, where he was a William H. Hasty Fellow. Uh, Professor Garcia's research focuses on labor and employment law, with particular attention to the ethics of race, gender, immigration, and globalization on the world of work. Before teaching, uh, Garcia specialized in labor and employment law. Uh, his scholarly articles have been published in the Hastings Law Journal, Florida Law Review, University of Pennsylvania Journal, and other fine journals. Uh, lastly, uh, from UCSD, Jesus Perez Varela is a six-year PhD candidate in Mexican history and currently working on his dissertation. He's writing a history on, of Mexican return, migration, and the impact it has on the town of Acampadado, 
Guanajuato from the Great Depression to the presidency of Vicente Fox. He's currently working with Dr. Michael Martion and Dr. David Gutierrez, both faculty in the history of, of, uh, of UCSD. He plans to finish next year, and his long-term goal is to become a professor and an advocate for immigrant uh, rights. Uh, now I'd like to uh, bring us to the moderator, Dr. Unifelt. Thank you very much, Provost. Uh, first of all, let me all thank you for being here tonight. This is an absolutely magnificent audience, and uh, I am planning to, in the second part of this panel, invite your questions. Uh, secondly, I would like to thank Luis Valdez for a very, very inspiring speech with a lot of biographical elements in it, but uh, also with a very fine sense of the reading of that biography. And I think that his own life contains the lives of many people, and this is exactly the kind of things he has been portraying in all the political, artistic work he has carried out throughout many decades over the last years. And I must say, I quite agree with him. I mean, the real citizenship is a question of imagination. I mean, how do you jump on a wagon and make citizenship your own project in often very hostile conditions? But since these hostile conditions also <coughs> exist, uh, we need to find ways, I think, to reconcile our imagination with reality and with real possibilities and particularly with the realities of politics in this country and certainly in many more places. So I have uh, invited our panelists uh, sitting to my right to each make a little comment and presentation for five or six minutes. And it is my hope that they might help us get this bridge between imagination deep philosophy, life experience, and our often very dire reality when it comes to citizenship in this country and elsewhere. Our first intervention will be by Professor Childs. Mr. Childs, you are cordially invited to start our panel discussion. Thank you very much. Um, first of all, I would like to thank the Eleanor Roosevelt and Thurgood Marshall Colleges for inviting me to this really important occasion. And um, second of all, but not second in importance, I would really like to express how honored I am to be invited to share the stage with Mr. Valdez. And in, in coming into kind of a, a, a bit of knowledge beyond like the kind of incredible oeuvre of work um, in terms of popular culture that he's done, in terms of like the way he combines um, popular culture, cultural production with activism, it's really been uh, an inspiring kind of, you know, introduction to that part of his work as well. And uh, I think this is really signally important in the time to hear a notion of artistic production and relationship to real human uh, endeavor and human experience, especially as it amounts to, includes the issues of politics and the issue of whether or not everyone as a people is going to attain real freedom. And I was especially um, interested and, and amazed to hear the story about uh, Mr. Valdez meeting Cesar Chavez and, and, and getting into the movement in Delano and in places, you know, in his experience of living in places like Corcoran. And the way that he framed it, I think, is really important in terms of that, 
kind of, uh, you know, Cesar Chavez asking him, well, there's no money here. And, he, and the idea that the value of his work, that the work in the theater in Delano was something more than monetary, that the idea was to remove the kind of pall of de jure and de facto enslavement from the situation of that kind of multicultural um, pastiche of people that he was talking about that existed in those camps. And um, the idea of going there to do something about that situation of, in, of slavery post in the post-13th Amendment of the United States is something that is very important for us today, especially in relationship to the Delano of today. Because in Delano in 1990, uh, they built a penitentiary um, to house 5,000-plus individuals, the, the descendants of the same people that worked in those camps um, back when M Mr. Valdez was talking about, mostly African-American and Latino peoples uh, being captured there in a, in a form of neo-slavery. And then in 2006, as if that wasn't enough, the state government and its prison binge decided to build another, actually did build another prison there. And the power of zero that Mr. Valdez talked about was one of the things that kept it from being built much earlier through the activism of environmentalists, um, people working for racial and social justice. But the state learned from those um, uh, strategies on the part of people working against the prison industrial complex and was able to still put through the building of that pre prison at the cost of somewhere around $600 million, putting another 5,000 plus people in that facility that according to black liberation um, and brown liberation theory would be called a concentration camp rather than a correctional facility. Because those that are entombed in places like this realize that there's nothing like corrections going on in these facilities. And today, at this very moment, 2.5, somewhere around 2.5 million people are languishing and entombed within prisons, jails, and immigrant detention centers in this country the ostensible most free and democratic country on the face of the globe. And that is something that is, should not be conscionable and acceptable to anybody who has a certain kind of uh, uh, you know, interest and thinks of their work having to do with human rights and something like citizenship. So there's a convergence of the realities of people who are getting swept up in ICE raids, those that are facing the kind of um, you know, racialized um, oppression that we would, uh, you know, think of in, in terms of, like, places that, you know, happened during World War II, dealing with an experience of being terrorized through forms of legal terrorism. There's a convergence of that experience of undocumented peoples in this country. Um, you have the federal government giving contracts to private industries like Corrections Corporations of America for upwards of $1 billion to increase the number of detention centers in this country. One billion dollars for, for one year, mind you. And something like 27,500 immigrants at, one, at any, in any day during the year being held in these facilities. Some in 23 and a half hour solitary confinement. They're shipped oftentimes 1,500 miles away from where they're picked up, destroying all kinds of familial connections. And the resonances with, with enslavement, with chattel slavery, should be very clear in terms of the very essential modality of chattel slavery, the separation and destruction of the family unit, what people like Orlando Patterson would call natal alienation. And Delano 1, 1990, and Delano 2 represent what Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls the golden gulag. California right now has a, a, somewhere near 180,000 prisoners, more than any state in the country. 
And that is equal to the number of prisoners, uh, approximately equal, to the number of prisoners that were in the, the entire country in the early 1960s. California has as many prisoners now as there were in the t- entire country in the early 1960s. Um, in five years under the governorship of Ronald Reagan, from 1984 to 1989, um, nine prisons were built in California. This equaled the number of prisons that were built in California from 1852 to 1979. Okay? This equaled the number of, in five years, we equaled the number of prisons we built, we, um, I say in quotes, over the span of over 100 years. So did people just go crazy all of a sudden and to, to elicit this type of a response from the state? Or was there a, a kind of a real infiltration? Um, Mr. Valdez talked about the cottage industry of, the, uh, of prisons in the United States. And this cottage industry is so uh, inculcated into our state's kind of dealing with social problems that it's become a bill- multi-billion dollar industry. And we're all investing in it. Our tax money is going to not only private prison corporations, but the most important aspect of the prison industrial complex is the intersec- intersection between privatization and state practice. The state prison system has private investment all through it. And all of us who are paying taxes in California or the country are investing in, in the prison industrial complex. So today there are 36 prisons in California, whereas in 1979 there were nine. Um, two univer- universities were built uh, during, from the 1980s when the prison binge started to now, while over 20 prisons were built. And pretty soon California is going to have the, the horrible distinction of spending more money on incarcerating people than educating them in its colleges and universities. This should not be acceptable to any of us sitting here in this institution of higher learning, which the University of California itself needs to look at its own investment portfolio relative to the prison industrial complex. And those of you familiar with the education, not incarceration movement that was working up in Berkeley and other campuses um, recognize the need to hold our own university accountable for its kind of investment in what can be considered a form of genocide for many communities, immigrant communities, the African-American community, Latino and Latina communities. The rise, of course, we know that the highest rising percentage of people getting caught up in the prison industrial complex are black women and Latinas. And, you know, people being born with their mother uh, incarcerated. And, and those of you that are familiar with this history a little bit know that it was okay with California law to allow women who happen to be pregnant on the inside of these facilities to be shackled to the bed while they gave birth. This was a, a, a regular practice within the, within the California prison system. And we're not talking about the, the crazy, deep, white supremacist South of old. We're talking about the modern, multicultural, wonderful place that everybody wants to go to the beach at. And I think that the notion of sweeping up all kinds of internal enemies, whether they be citizen or non-citizen, is something that we all um, should be engaged with. And in terms of the power of zero, like the idea that, you know, making something out of nothing, we need to reorient our focus just as Mr. Valdez did on the slavery that's going on in places like Delano right now, in places like Corcoran, in places like Pelican Bay in places like the immigrant detention camps in rural Texas that are getting billions of dollars of of American government funding to put people in solitary confinement and deport them. 
This is something that is on all of us. And so in terms of the power of zero, the only way that the, that the something can be made out of nothing, that the holes of solitary confinement, where whole prisons are turned into 23 and a half hour a day solitary confinement prisons, the only way that that hole, that that nothing can be turned into something is if we all accept our responsibility as intellectuals, activists, and human beings to go to those gates and shake them down. Um, one example of this, and I'll close, is uh, a group that was called Mother's Rock, Mothers Reclaiming Our Children, in Los Angeles that started as a result of this prison binge. And it became a multicultural, it started off as uh, African-American women getting together to, to ask themselves, why are all our children being taken away from us, kidnapped, disappeared? And it ended up being a multicultural grouping that involved uh, mostly Latina women and black women, but also poor white women, asking that same question. Well, what came out of that, or, uh, that uh, organization, that nexus of everyday people, was the important gang truce that happened after the LA uprising in Los Angeles in the 1990s. The gang truce that the LAPD wasn't very comfortable with. Because otherwise, what would, what, would there be their labor, what would be the point of their labor as kind of an occupying force within these communities if the gangs aren't fighting anymore? But these women were not professors at UCSD. They weren't lawyers, doctors, or whatever. They were women who had very little, something close to nothing, who did a great deal. Now, what does that mean for us who are in the privileged space like this in respect to 2.5 million people being engaged? Now, notions of morality aside, and there's a lot of people that will say, well, what about all the rapists and murderers? But those of you in California know that the things like the three strikes law here in California, the Rockefeller drug laws in New York, have been a part of this kind of move to settle social problems with this capitalist enterprise of unfreedom or modern-day neo-slavery. So I appreciate Mr. Valdez's words, and they, they issue a charge to all of us of good conscience in the name of human rights and allowing everybody to be global citizens instead of internal aliens. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dennis Childs. I think passion is ranging very high tonight, and I very much like the serious and engaged way in which we are tackling this issue. Let's uh, move on to Jesus Perez and listen to his words. First of all, I want to thank um, Luis Valdez for being here. Um, and as a, as a Mexican, um, all I can say that um, if, if it wasn't for the movement that he took, that he developed with Sar Chavez, I wouldn't be here in front of you. So that's kind of a side note. Taking part of this panel, um, it, it's an honor. Growing up in the, uh, in the 1970s in the Salinas Valley, um, and also being part of a, of a family of farm workers, my dad in the 1970s used to take us marching with Cesar Chavez. Uh, while marching, uh, I kept hearing the name of El Teatro Campesino, and, and they were performing um, throughout these, these areas back in those days. And something that the, the Mexican farm workers kept talking about was el teatro de la carpa, or the open-air theater, something that they kept, um, especially because they came from small towns, uh, that, was, that was a very common thing to have back in the 1950s and 60s when, when my dad was growing up in Mexico. 
But this, um, but as a migrant, as a, as a migrant kid, um, the, the, the names of Cesar Chavez and Luis Valdez got stuck in my mind. And that late, late, later in the 1990s, uh, learning, learning about the Chicano movement from an academic standpoint, the two names that came to, to become, to become uh, important references to the Chicano movement was Cesar Chavez, Luis Valdez, and El Teatro Campesino. But in reference to this conversation, um, in, um, in, in right after the Mexican, Mexican Revolution of 1910, there was an intellectual by the name of Jose Vasconcelos who wrote this, uh, this book called La Raza Cosmica, or The Cosmic Race. This book opened a, Pandora, a cultural Pandora box uh, which embraced, started embracing the complexities of Mexican culture um, pretty much advocating that Mexicans came from Indian, Spanish, and Mestizos. To, to, to me, reading this book in a Chicano history class back, back in the 1990s at Fresno State, constantly came to mind the parallels that the Chicano movement have and had in, in the 1960s and 70s. An ep epic poem by the name uh, Yo Soy Joaquin, which I think is nar narrated by, by Luis Valdez, uh, Yo soy Joaquin, I am Joaquin, became the, the equivalent of La Raza Cosmica in so many ways. Because this poem um, began to embrace the cultural virtues and differences Mexicans and Chicanos face in the United States. But as a Mexican growing in the United States, Luis Valdez, Cesar Chavez, Corky Gonzalez, um, resuscitated Mexican culture in so many ways. And one of the one of the things that that um, that I'm that should be considered in contemporary terms in 2008 is that as this movement was as important as it was, a question that I bring to you, and hopefully you'll be able to answer it because I cannot find an answer as being a Mexican historian, is where is the Chicano movement right now? Being a farm worker myself, um, and, and growing up in the Salinas Valley, you still see a lot of these abuses that happen, and the Cesar Chavez and people like Luis Valdez were fighting. The abuses that still exist. Um, for the first time in 35 years, my family who are farm workers, they don't have a job. And, and being... Uh, somebody who benefited from the union of Cesar Chavez, I can tell you that it's much needed in contemporary terms. Farm, farm, work, farm labor is fundamental for our state. It's fundamental for this country. So I, I pose another question. Um, could there be another important farm labor movement as the one Cesar Chavez gave to us? And of course, to conclude, Will, will this movement be resuscitated with, within the power of zero that Luis Valdez just mentioned? Thank you. Thank you very much, Jesus. Um, we move on to our final panelists, um, Dr. Ruben Garcia. Thank you. Uh, it's a real privilege to be here on this great panel and listen to Luis Valdez, whose work I have admired for so long, um, growing up in El Paso, Texas, um, and uh, as a teenager, 
finding out about this, uh, 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 Richie Valens and uh, Los Lobos and, and uh, adding that to my Bruce Springsteen and my Beatles and my Rolling Stones. So I, I am uh, really grateful to be here and to talk about uh, the connections that I think Luis has uh, really exemplified in his life and his work about the connections between uh, work and citizenship. Uh, not just, of course, as it relates to immigration or, or formal citizenship, but also uh, the citizenship in the community of America, and as Luis has said, not just the United States of America, but this uh, this continent, this this globe. Um, one of my, uh, as I said, one of my favorite poets, uh, Bruce Springsteen, has said that the uh, connection uh, or, or work is fundamental to our idea of who we are as Americans. And again, speaking as Americans broadly, uh, all up and down the continent, um, I think it's been clear uh, that uh, Chicanos, Latinos, uh, have always seen it as part of their uh, um, uh, entree into American or United States society. Um, and that is clear uh, from so much of, of Louise's work. Um, I think, of course, when we talk about the connection between uh, work and citizenship, still, uh, even though it is um, that, uh, that way in which so many generations of people before us have uh, gained real citizenship, even if not uh, uh, formal citizenship or legal citizenship, is the, you know, some, some of the ways in which it can be problematized, of course, the, I refer here, of course, to the disabled, the unemployed, the sick, who are not able to fully uh, contribute to our society. Uh, but many, of course, more problematically and more, more important, of course, for our discussion tonight, um, is the connection between uh, those who contribute to our society and yet who are not citizens, and not formal citizens under the law, uh, and their struggle for citizenship under the law and despite the law. Uh, is much of what I have uh, spent my professional life working on, uh, whether it's been uh, as a lawyer for uh, immigrant workers or whether it's been uh, as a scholar, again, trying to make the connections between uh, work and citizenship. So I, I, I take great uh, um, um, comfort from the things that Luis has said today about that. And also I just, again, want to recognize his work uh, in telling those stories of Mexican-Americans um, trying to achieve full citizenship despite uh, legal barriers and not just uh, you know, the immigration system, but also the criminal justice system in, in his work, uh, Zoot Suit, where he told the, the, the story of the uh, Sleepy Lagoon murder and the, uh, the trial uh, in Los Angeles in the 1940s. Uh, and, and these kinds of stories uh, really, uh, I think, are important uh, to tell and retell uh, and, and, and I just want to spend a, a few more uh, of the minutes that I have, again, making the connection between um, Mexican-Americans, Latinos, Chicanos, um, connecting with um, the United States uh, through, uh, in various ways, and, and yet also struggling for full citizenship under the law. Uh, I see uh, many of these uh, historic cases, um, and again, because I'm a, a law professor, I think in, in terms of cases, uh, but every case tells a story uh, and every legal drama. I'm not talking about the practice or anything like that, uh, the wire. I'm talking about, you know, the stories that in which the legal system has 
um, rendered violence on communities, uh, and yet they've still uh, utilized um, the power of zero and the power of citizenship, an idea of belonging to America, an idea of contributing to America, uh, to uh, work through the system and, and sometimes overcome the system. I think of uh, the Lemon Grove incident, uh, in, in just not, not 15 miles from here, um, where uh, the, the segregation of, of Mexicans from uh, Lemon Grove schools uh, was uh, um, challenged through the legal system. I think of the, and, and again, I, I teach uh, a lot of Chicanos and Chicanas, and, and many of them are unfamiliar with these stories. You know, they're, they're part of a new generation that just isn't familiar with the ways in which uh, these struggles have, about citizenship, have played out uh, in the legal system and on the uh, political system as well. I think of the Mendez versus Westminster case. Uh, the, uh, again, the, the blueprint for uh, full citizenship for African Americans. The NAACP and Thurgood Marshall filed a, an amicus brief in this case, uh, arguing and really you know, m- making the first arguments uh, that would become Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. I think of the companion case to Brown versus Board of Education, Hernandez versus Texas, uh, about exclusion of Mexicans from juries in Texas. Uh, and, and the fact that a lot of people aren't f- as familiar with the Hernandez case as they are with the uh, Brown case. Um, I, of course, the legal struggles for full citizenship uh, by the United Farm Workers that, that uh, Luis has talked about today, uh, and the idea that uh, the farm workers, as, as you mentioned, excluded from the National Labor Relations Act, um, calling for full citizenship and full recognition of their, of their rights under state law. Um, I think of Plyler versus Doe, a 1982 case, which again uh, talks, you know, talks about this idea of citizenship and the need for uh, the children of of uh, undocumented uh, immigrants to uh, have full citizenship in this country and 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 in education. And even uh, as we're as we're looking into the global economy today, and we're looking at uh, even recent cases, maybe somewhat more obscure to some of you, uh, but still uh, cases about undocumented workers trying to uh, obtain full rights under uh, labor and employment laws, uh, such as Hoffman Plastics versus NLRB in 2002. Um, and again, the idea that undocumented workers also gaining a kind of citizenship here through work, but not fully recognized uh, under the law. Uh, as we as we speak, um, so I, again, I think that all of these stories need to be told and, and retold, and that's why I'm so uh, glad to hear uh, Louise here uh, telling his stories and, and reminding us of these stories, and also the questions that, that I would have for all of us are, you know, how will the stories of the next generation be told, and and how will this mem- these memories of of people gaining citizenship. Uh, continue to be told in the internet Google age. Um, how will the movements, uh, such as the Immigrant uh, Workers Freedom Ride, the Day Without a Mexican, the other kinds of, of, of May Day or, or, or worker movements, how will they utilize Teatro Campesino or other forms that Luis has pioneered to tell their stories to try and change and, and further the movement? So, so those are the thoughts that I had, and I'm, again, really glad and look forward to your, uh, your questions. Thank you. What is the significance about nine? The, the number nine is significant because it's the end of a cycle, obviously. Zero to nine is the decimal system. The Mayas actually had a, a system based on 20. It was a bigesimal system, so the number 18 was just as significant to them. But n- nine is, uh, is the last digit before you go to zero again. So it is a, a term of completion. 
And it is not me, but uh, genetic science that, that reveals that at the, at the age nine, you have completely replaced every single living cell in your body. It is science that is telling you this. It's not some mystical thought that I pulled out of my head here. I, I don't go for those uh, you know, loose kind of flimsy little ideas. I try to brace everything as I can on empirical science. And the fact is that, that the evolution of ourselves, out of ourselves, is genetic, and it is physical, and it has everything to do with our health and the way that, that, that we... Um, we evolved in life as physical, corporal being, beings. Um, let me move on. What can you do about the wall, immigration? It seems to me that we need to straddle the wall. Don't let the wall be. You know, we need to be bilingual, bicultural, binational. Many of us as possible need to be binational. Why is it all right for Anglo-Americans to be Anglo citizens, to be English citizens and American citizens, for Israelis to be both Israeli and American? Why can we not be Mexicans and Americans both? and straddle that border. The thing is that the, the, the Berlin Wall across, across the Mexican border will rise if we let it. That's a wall that is being bred out of ignorance. And we need to bridge that gap. Actually, the north of Mexico is so much like the southwest, you wouldn't believe it, you know. And Mexico really is basically being reborn. In, in, in lieu of that, let me just say it, the flow of immigration. There's some real problems with immigration, but our troubles have just begun. I mentioned the, harmonic, the wave harmonic of history. Uh, 200 years ago, in 1810, Mexico fought the War of Independence. 100 years ago, in 1910, uh, the great Mexican Revolution, the first social upheaval of the 20th century, uh, hit in Mexico. Expect it, folks. It's coming. It's on its way now. There's virtual war in the streets in Mexico now. It's over drugs, but the, the government is, is teetering. You can expect that when this new revolution hits, you're going to see immigration like you've never seen to the United States. People will be coming. But here's the trick, is that you who are in school and can, are bilingual and know something about your own origins can be very useful. You can be very helpful in eliminating, one, more murder down there, and two, in trying to uh, balance the political equation that will allow Mexico and the United States to emerge from this coming uh, upheaval. And it, I, I'm not a fatalist, but I, I read the signs in the papers every day. And it isn't just uh, the search for jobs that is driving people out of Mexico. Mexico needs to develop more a sense of who it is. That battle has never been, has never been won. It's still, it's still raging in the heart of Mexico. You don't hear about the Mayas in Mexico. Okay, I had to be a Chicano living in the United States to study this. When the Chicano Teatros went back to Mexico in 1974, they said, you guys know more about Mexico than we do. And the fact is that was the spirit of the Chicano movement. It was the rebirth of an appreciation for Mexican culture because we didn't get it in Mexico. That's what defines a Chicano. That's what Chicano means. It means you respect your origins, that's all, in a continental sense, perhaps. That should not be lost. Somebody said, what's missing in our Chicano community? That sense of identity is still important. You know why? Because it's a, it's a piece that you can put on the table and you can conjure with it. You can conjure some changes. As a Chicano, I've been invited uh, to direct a zoot suit in Spanish for the first time, you know, by the National Theater of Mexico, okay? This is going to be next year. This is the first time that they have ever invited a Chicano director or playwright to do one of his pieces in Mexico. To me, this is like going back to Broadway, you understand? But on another level. And I see it as a gesture of brotherhood of jumping that border and allowing, not allowing someone to build a wall that separates me from my origins. And the same way with Mexicanos to let them know that it's all right. Now, what about heroes? We need heroes. We need to create them. In Zoot Suit, what I did is I created El Pachuco. Why? Well, partly because I needed it for the play, but partly because I saw no colored Superman. You know what I mean? 
I read Superman funny books with everybody else. You know, as I was growing up, I was, the Batman comic books, and I saw, well, they're no Chicano comic book heroes. But in El Pachuco, you have a figure who can't be defeated. You can't kill him because he's Henry Reyna's uh, superego. He flies through the air, he snaps his fingers and changes things. When the sailors finally catch him and strip off his zoot suit, what do you have underneath? An Indio who stands up in his loincloth and says, how can, how can you strip away the dignity of an Indio? And that's a superhero, you understand? I do it as a storyteller, I do it as a playwright. It's symbolic, but that's my function. I don't pretend to be anything else. I'm a playwright, I'm a storyteller. I make movies, I make plays, but we all have our place and we all have our role to play. And I'm an activist storyteller. Finally, what's missing in the Chicano community then? What's missing is, is, is this movement. You're already in motion. You will be very activated by the next two years. As a matter of fact, you will be energized and fired up. And you're, you're being more prepared than you think you are. You're more ready for it than you know. The times are with you. If you really need more entrenación, more training, come to San Juan Bautista. Come join El Teatro Campesino, work for nothing for a while, but learn how to express yourself, learn how to help others to express themselves. We're still in a drafty old packing shed, you understand? I didn't want to sacrifice our heart and our vibration for the sake of comfort. And it's hot in the summer and cold in the winter, but this is what we learned from Cesar Chavez. Keep your edge. For Christ's sake, keep your edge. You know, I could be in Hollywood, but I don't like what Hollywood does. What Hollywood threatened to do to me was turn me into a commodity, and I wasn't going to become a commodity. I wasn't going to become a brand name. I wasn't going to become a, 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 you know, a product that is owned by one of those corporations in Hollywood. So I said, the hell with you. If I can't make the kinds of movies that I want to make, then I'm going back to the old warehouse. You know what I mean? And do the plays that speak the truth that come from my heart. Keep your edge. Don't do it for the money. Do it for your heart. Watch your heart. And... Uh, we have a program called the Becca program, bilingual, bilingual, bicultural education, economic independence, creative discipline, artistic excellence. This is what we're teaching young people to go out in the schools and teach other people to do this, to stand up in front of their communities and speak the truth because this is the essence of a democracy. This is the essence of activism. If you can teach campesinos and poor people to stand up and harangue the crowd, we're halfway there. Muchísimas gracias. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.